So take note of the questions again. Um, again, we're back in uh, Luke's gospel this morning, Luke chapter uh, 22, and of course we have the Christmas tree halfway seen by the room, uh, that there is a Christmas tree back there, that the Christmas season, of course, is upon us. We were reminded last week, reading from Isaiah chapter 9, and hearing the sermon from Isaiah chapter 9, that the whole plan, the whole purpose, and the whole point of the incarnation, the condescension of God, of the Son of God, becoming man was all about him going to the cross to accomplish salvation, that man could have peace with God, as the angels proclaimed the very evening that Jesus was born, that, that men could have peace with God. And so we are getting closer and closer and closer to the cross as we study Luke's gospel. This morning, as we look in our, our passage, I, I want you to notice something about the flow of the story, the flow of the story, and, and what transpires that, that evening in the upper room after the, um, the last Passover and the Lord's Supper. I want you to take notice of the, the ebb and flow of the story. I want you to notice how it's high and then it's low. Like, like a boat on the ocean, like a boat on the, the water, moving up and down the crests and the swells of the, of the waves, moving up to the top and all the way down in between the troughs of the swells. Last time we were together, we, we in a sense, we kind of peaked at the inauguration of the, the first Lord's Supper, and, and we see how quickly, though, the evening just descends there's an ebb and flow of that evening. The conversation descends when, when Jesus exposed only what he knows. It goes down even further when the disciples get it heated toward one another. Was the whole night a waste? Was everything at a loss? So notice the ebb and flow of this evening. But really pay attention, though, to what Jesus says to his boys that evening in bringing them back up on the eve of, the de of his death on the cross. He still, is he still is loving them. He's still pushing them. He's still teaching them, and he's still shaping them. So let's look to Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to start reading in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of them... It could be who is going to do this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, 
Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is great, one who, for who is the greater, one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and to sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see this holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So our passage this morning is a continuation of the events that took place, or taking place, in the upper room before Jesus was arrested and goes to the cross. Last time we were together, we saw the preparations of the Passover meal being made and how all the details were already worked out by the Lord, showing his disciples and and us the provision that God has provided in his son as the Passover lamb. Remember verse 14, that at the beginning of the meal, we we get insight that Jesus desired, he desired to eat with them that night. Not just another meal, but it was the last Passover and the Lord's Supper that was inaugurating the, the new covenant in his blood. And so when we get to the verse 20, you can even go back and read it. This is like a high watermark of the evening. This is a a pinnacle of of the evening and even of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the the top of the wave. The new covenant is is at hand. Salvation has come. Forgiveness once and for all has come. The sacrifice is is about to be made. And it was all portrayed over this meal. So verse 21 just seems odd. Jesus brings right up, brings right up, right during the Lord's Supper, right? They just got done uh, probably singing a hymn together, and, and Jesus brings right up to them that sitting at the table with them was someone that, was, that they were breaking bread with, that they were eating with, that they drank of the same cup, that there was someone amongst them that would betray him. And that betrayal was something that was going to lead to his death. Now we have to understand, meals shared together in the first century were were very precious. They weren't taken for granted. Fellowship meant something over a meal. And so for them to hear Jesus say that one of you is going to betray me was absolutely repugnant to them. Because you're eating with him. You're breaking bread with him. How, How could it be possible that anyone would do this? The ebb and the descent of the evening exposed by Jesus that there is villainy and sin amongst them. And the spiraling down of the sin as the evening we see continues. The conversation shifts into after that. And yet Jesus lovingly, as he always does, shepherds them back. 
the ebb and flow of that evening, brothers and sisters, is something that reminds me of my own life. Amazing moments of joyous faith and satisfaction in Christ, fellowship with the Spirit, a hunger and thirst for the Word of God and being satisfied by the, by the Word of God, joy in the fellowship of the church, the high watermarks. But then as my heart is prone to do, the descent into self-pity, hopelessness, shame and guilt that set in before me because of my own sin and, and maybe even the circumstances of my life, pride that I give into, self-exaltation and self-sufficiency always find their way out. The ebb and flow of my life. It's one of the reasons why the song, I hear the words of love, means so much to me. Verse 3, I believe it is, is my love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. And just like my life, and maybe your life, and your heart, and your joy, that evening ebbed and flowed just like the song. And that evening, we see how sin kills joy. And just like in my heart, it kills joy. But just in like in that evening, and just like in my life and your life, Jesus lovingly shepherds us to the truth. He lovingly draws us to the truth of the kingdom, the truth of who he is, the truth of, of what he is doing and what he has already done. And he, he sets them this perspective of this is how the Christian life is because there is ebb and flow, but I am with you. And so let's unpack the ebb and flow of the evening and see how that compares and mirrors our own lives and our own hearts. So first we need to dig into the descent because that's what happens first. The evening descends quickly. Verse 21, look at it again. He says, but behold, this is Jesus speaking, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus is bringing up here what he already knows, what has already been determine what's already been happening behind the scenes. He brings up what only he knows and Judas knows about. The other disciples, they, they, they had no clue to what was happening. Again, they were astonished and, and, and shocked by that someone could break bread with Jesus at the Lord's table and, and then yet still betray him. They're stunned. But imagine how stunned Judas must have been when Jesus said this. And Jesus doesn't expose him by name. He doesn't go all Nathan the prophet on him. He affirms. He affirms to him, to Judas, and to everyone else that he knows. That he knows. And he wants Judas to know that he knows. Matthew's gospel tells us that Judas even asked him after Jesus says this. He says, is it I? And Jesus said, you said it. 
John gives us a more lengthy conversation and even tells us the point, tells us that the, the point of Jesus telling him all of this, or after Jesus tells him about all of this, that Judas then leaves. Jesus tells him, go do what you're going to do. Jesus not only wants Judas to know that he knows what he is up to, but even more, he wants him to know, and he wants the disciples to know, when they have eyes to see and when they have the ears to hear, that the big plans of God are being accomplished underneath all of it. It's not just sin. It says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, as it has been willed, as it has been appointed. The sovereign hand of God appointed, planned, willed, and decreed his betrayal, his arrest, and his death. And even in the midst of such treachery and betrayal, where do we see Jesus' confidence lie? Where's Jesus' confidence? It's firmly fixed on his Father's will. And he will pray that very same thing in deep, great agony. Not my will be done, but yours. And right after that, in verse 23, this is where the dinner starts to get awkward. It says in verse 23 that they began to question one another. The disciples began to question one another. Which of them could it be who was going to do this? Again, the, the disciples were stunned. They, they had no clue by this, by this revelation. They were baffled by who would break such a fellowship. They began to question one another. They began to interrogate one another. Who's going to do this? Passively, aggressively, asking questions, uh, uh, questions on who's going to betray Jesus. The passive aggressiveness was, certainly not me. So I'm going to ask I'm going to ask William. I'm going to ask Thomas. I'm going to ask the other Judas. I'm going to ask Peter and James and John. But certainly it's not, it's not me. I don't minimize the situation, but if you've ever had children and you've come up upon a mess or you've come up upon something that's broken, uh, the first question that comes out of your mouth is, who did it? And all of them will instantly look at each other in disbelief, like in awe and shock. They're like, well, I didn't, what are you talking about? I didn't do it. It wasn't, it, it wasn't me. I could not leave such a mess. Maybe it was them, not me. I couldn't leave such a mess. I couldn't do such a thing. The sort of implica implications and questions that they ask one another, implying that it's not them, but it's certainly someone else. So here, the evening that once was lively and exciting, descending into accusations, lines of questioning of each of the guys. And you know the funny thing about that whole situation is they're questioning one another. Judas was the only one that actually asked Jesus, is it me? Pride is blinding. And there's something to note here then. First is, do not deny the potential of sin 
that can and does come out of our own hearts. Now, this isn't the point of the passage, but I think there's a clear implication here of how quick and easy it is for us to deny the potential of our own sin and our own ability to to sin and and instantly place that upon other people. They may have the potential, but but certainly it's not me. so, So what we see take place in the disciples here is what takes place in everyone's heart. It's almost natural to deny, to deny the potential of sin. And to quickly bring evidence upon other people. And to bring our own evidences of our own innocence before everyone else. Blame shifting by questioning other people's intentions and and, and their motives. In in just the next passage, we're going to see how Jesus will tell Peter specifically, You are going to deny me, Pete. Not me, Jesus. I'm packing heat, bro. I'm going to get him. I'm not denying you. And yet, John Calvin properly diagnosed the human heart in saying that it is only an idol factory. We all shall be warned here, should be warned here, that there is not one of us who doesn't have the potential to sin in such great ways. When we think that it never can be us, You might be surprised as David and as Peter and as Judas was when it was them. False humility only blinds us from grace. It blinds us from grace. False humility is pride. It is only pride disguised as humility. And it never works before the Lord. So we must be on guard. We must be ready, prayerfully walking in faith in light of the potential of sin in all of us. But secondly, we must understand the dangers of of self-exaltation. Look at verse 24. The dangers of self-exaltation that continue to bring the descent of, of the evening. It says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. Just when we thought the evening could not, in a sense, get lower or could get worse or descend into deeper selfishness and sin, we we read verse 24. And I I really pondered for a while this, this week on how in the world did these guys get from all denying that they ever could betray Jesus at all to now arguing who would be the greatest? How in the world did they do that? How could they get there? I mean, going from denying who's the worst to now trying to think who's the best. How could they get from that to this? And then it dawned upon me, because I didn't have to look very far. When I excuse the potential and the severity of my own sin and, and live in my own world of false humility, And self-exaltation and pride is only what's just around around the corner. It's the very thing that comes next. Self-exaltation and false humility are are two sides of the same coin, and it's only a nickel's worth of pride. And it gets us and buys us nothing 
but descent into sin. It's so easy to, to look on these guys that evening and to just condemn them for, for, for their obsession of their own uh, obsession with their personal greatness right after Jesus is, is like, he gives them the Lord's Supper. He gives them the, the, the Lord's Supper, and then they start jockeying for position and almost, in a sense, saying, okay, now that we know Jesus is going, who's going to be first? The Bible doesn't paint the disciples in a very good light here. And, and, and by the way, that, that in itself is evidence that the Bible is true. And it wasn't just conjured up by man. I think Peter and the boys would have kind of like wrote that out. Like, man, we look really bad here, guys. Yeah, I remember that night. Why are you bringing it up? Because people for thousands of years are going to look at this and think, we're morons. Well, we are, or were. Man wouldn't have wrote that in, but God puts it in there. And yet, are not the same impulses for recognition and greatness exist in our own hearts? That self-exaltation that, that we really want to be great. That we want to be seen as needed and, 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 and important. Nowadays, everybody is, is told to be a leader. Everybody is supposed to be great. Everybody's supposed to be somebody. And I think that if we are honest, we, we can buy into that lie that we are and we should be and we should demand and have that, a right to be somebody that our voice has, uh, should be heard. That we want personal glory in the same ways that they did. We just don't come out and argue about it because we're too proud to argue about it out loud. We must understand then the real dangers of false humility and self-exaltation. It's all pride. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There's no other road. And the descent of that evening was pushed down by sin and pride. And again, just like that night, our own hearts, they ebb in the same direction. Descent into sin when we're not careful of the potential of our own sins. And we're not on guard for the potential of our own sins and our own temptations. And we're not on guard for the self-exaltation that, that does come in our hearts. That does exist there. When we're not careful, there is a descent of sin that always takes place. But just as that evening descended, there is always the gospel. And we must believe that that brings this ascent of grace to us. That dinner could have considered, could have been considered ruin. A waste of time at this point. I've, I've, I've had those moments with like with my own children doing like family worship stuff, and, and it just it's like a grenade just goes off and the whole thing is done, right? It's ruined, you know, by whatever. It, it could be anything. Name it. And, and then I'm like, that's it? This is a waste of time. Right? And wipe it away. And Jesus could have done that. I've done that. I've got up. I've closed my Bible. I'm saying, y'all go to bed. And Jesus could have done the same thing, flipping over tables again. And we all would have understood. 
Like, yeah, there's something extremely frustrating that just took place here. I mean, could you think of a more inappropriate time to be like, yeah, I should be the one sitting on the throne here, than right after taking the Lord's Supper? It would be like the person with us after we take the Lord's Supper, they're the first one in line waiting to eat, right? Just like missing the whole point of the whole thing. Now, someone has to be first, by the way, so don't be afraid to take it, right? But instead of Jesus flipping the table off and throwing the, you know, slamming the door and walking out, what does he do? He shepherds them. He lifts them up. And he lifts them up in this ascent of grace. There's a flow back to the top of the wave. Sin and pride brings us down, but grace lifts us out of the mire of our own slough of despond, as, Paul, as Bunyan called it. Look how Jesus, is, Jesus shepherds them in verse 25. I love what he says here. I mean, it just kind of goes right after them. Look what he says. He says, the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those authority over them are called benefactors. Now, he gives them an example. He sets for them an example. Hey, you know, there's kings, there's rulers, there's some crazy dudes that, that rule over you here in Jerusalem, in Israel, and in all of Rome. They're oppressive. They exercise authority and dominion over you. They, they give you no freedom. They, they're heavy burdens. They have high taxes. And yet these guys, these secular rulers, these Gentiles, they call themselves benefactors. They call themselves good and benevolent. I'm the good king. I'm good King Herod. They call themselves these things. Charitable self-sacrificing for the people. Do we not hear the same garbage today? I get tired of that. How politicians and world leaders and dictators actually view themselves as benefactors of the people. All these regulations and rules are for your good. Trust me, I know what's better. And though reality is they oppress, they take away freedoms, but they view themselves as good and sacrificial for the people, knowing what's best for you. Nothing new, is under, nothing new here is under the sun. We can relate to this. We understand our experience is on a, on a different level, but the human heart is still the same. And this is the kind of leadership, greatness that the world projects, that this is greatness, and that Kajillions of people, that's the kind of greatness and power that they're aiming for and they're putting their hope in. Right? That's their God. That's their hope is in these fallen benefactors. But verse 26, but not so with you. I love that. Not you. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. He's saying those self-exalting leaders of the world, they're not your example. Stop trying to be like them. They politic, they jockey, they smear, they sin to get their position and their greatness and their power in the eyes of the world. And for what? And for what? So that everyone will look at them and say they're a phony. Because that's what we do. Why would you want to be like them? 
Rather, he says, in the kingdom of God, greatness, the greatest, are those who are like the youngest. Now, we've heard this before. We've heard this before. Unless you come to me like this little child, you shall have nothing to do with my kingdom. We come as children. We come as the weakest and the smallest and the helpless and the needy, as sinners needing redemption and needing grace. And again, this is what the kingdom of God is made up of. The youngest, as children. And this is a whole new economy of what greatness is that Jesus is giving us. Oh, this, this, is, this is freedom for those who have eyes to hear and eyes to see and ears to hear. Freedom. Jesus is telling us what greatness is. It's not that stuff. Greatness is the leader who comes as the weakest and serves. Now, this is an important word, serve. It's used three times in our passage this morning. In the same form, it's used three times. And it should be a, a somewhat of a familiar word to us. Diakoneo, which means to serve or to... Please, someone say it. Deacon. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. To deacon. The kingdom of God is for those who are the youngest and are deaconing. Serving one another. The kingdom leaders are deacons. The greatest are deacons. Not the position, little d. All of us serving one another. He says so three times. Verse 27. Jesus is drawing it up even more. But not just in a kingdom ethic of serving. But he draws them in grace. To understand and to believe and to put in context this new kingdom ethic, and grace, verse 27, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Do you see what Jesus is, is saying? I mean, all the boys, they're, they're sitting around the table, they're lounging out, we've seen was it Michelangelo's picture or Leonardo? Who is it? Which one? Michelangelo's picture? I mean, laying out. They're enjoying the feast. Jesus is, is there. But, but who has been serving them all night long? Who has been serving them all night long? Who gave them the Passover meal? Who served them the, the Lord's Supper, passing the cup of the new covenant of his blood to each and every one of them? And they hear this, and they're saying, we're not greater than our master. John 13. Everybody turn to John 13 and see this. John chapter 13. And I want to show you another way that Jesus served them that evening. We forget about this one because this one's awkward. Verse 1. Now therefore... The feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, praise God, and he loved them to the end. Verse 2, during the supper, or during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given 
all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Verse 4, what did he do? He rose up from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took on a towel. He tied it around his waist. And what did he do? Verse 5, he then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel, the towel that was wrapped around him. What? Look how Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, portrays what serving is. This is what Jesus meant, and this is what the disciples understood when he said, but I am among you, I am among you as the one who serves. Greatness in the kingdom of God is marked by humility. Humility. This example of of serving and being a servant to them, humbling himself, washing their feet like a servant, is the example of what greatness in the kingdom of God is. And as we saw before, the descent of that evening was pride and sin. And pride and sin only keeps us away from greatness of the kingdom of God. from serving others and loving as Christ loves. So this isn't, this isn't just a new ethic that Jesus is saying that everybody should, should do. This isn't just a, a new economy of leadership so gurus can write books on leadership and say this is Jesus' form of leadership in the kingdom. Jesus to them that evening when he washed their feet, he was physically proclaiming the gospel to them. He was physically proclaiming the gospel to them by serving them. And here's how I know how. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the motive in the heart behind all serving in the kingdom of God is one of proclaiming physically the gospel. It wasn't just about washing someone's feet because that's a lowly thing to do. It absolutely is. It's not just about making their feet physically clean and, and humbling them oneself under another. No, it's about proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel of what serving is. This is how Jesus has come to serve his people and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we serve one another, brothers and sisters, according to the gospel, we are proclaiming the gospel to one another as Jesus did for us that night. He has set before us what greatness is. He has told us what our priorities are to be. The Apostle Paul uh, accounts of this uh, perfectly for us in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. I mean, doesn't that speak perfectly to to that particular evening? Let each of you not only look to his own interest, your own greatness, your own self 
uh, satisfaction and things, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what's this mind? The mind of love, the mind of serving. How, what did this serving look like? What was it couched in? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God was something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We proclaim the gospel and show what kind of gospel we believe and how we love and how we treat and how we serve one another. And Philippians 2, and Jesus that evening tells us the best way to kill pride, the two-sided coin, is to set our hearts and our minds to contemplate the humility of Jesus. The cross of Christ. Look where it is most clearly seen. His willingness to die for a people like the disciples and people like us. It wasn't the act, of, again, of, of just washing dirty feet. It's not just that. It, it represented something greater. That he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Only by God's sovereign grace has any one of us been ransomed and redeemed. And that is how we love. And that is how we serve. That is, that is how we are pulled back up in the ascent of grace. This is the kind of love in which we have seen it's the kind of love that we've experienced in Christ and from Christ. And it's the only possible way in which Christians are to love and serve in this kingdom, in his kingdom. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. To love one another as I have loved you. That, that goes further than love your neighbor like yourself, doesn't it? Love your neighbor only goes to, to me, how I love myself, but how Jesus loved me was what? As a ransom for many. As a ransom for, for, for many and what he has done for me. It goes further. If Christ has served and loved you and, and me in this way, then gospel love is loving and serving one another as Christ has done for you and has done for me. And however that may look like, I mean, we could sit here for days applying how this may look like, however that may look like, whether it's large, whether it's small, it's sacrificial, it's humble, and it's not self-serving, but Christ-honoring and Christ-glorifying. It doesn't matter. What matters is our hearts and what matters our motive, that it's not about us, it's not about making our greatness known, it's about making Christ's greatness known in the exaltation of his name. Because he alone is worthy. And as so as Christ loved me, so I love you. 
And we know there's difficulty in that, isn't there? That's hard. There's problems with that. And the first problem with that is what we started off with, the descent of sin. Sin and pride. That's the first problem. Sin and pride. Always the enemy of love. It binds us. It diminishes our cares and our concerns for others and it places upon number one. Well, what we think is number one. What we want number one to be us. So then how do we overcome this? Well, first we have to admit again. Admit and be honest and own up to our faults specifically, confessing them and repenting of them. To always repent and confess. And this is a hard process because, again, the natural man, the flesh, always wants to forget. It always wants to downplay. It always wants to downplay of the daily fight of sin. But we're called to fight the good fight together. And we fight sin with truth. We fight sin with the truth of the, with the gospel, with the word of God, by putting it in our hearts and in our minds all the time. We're always feeding it to our hearts and to our minds as Jesus did the boys that evening. That's Jesus shepherding us. And if we're not feeding our hearts and our minds with the word of God and the gospel, then no wonder such ebb and flow. No wonder such descent. We must constantly be putting it in our hearts and in our minds and fighting the good fight with the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and doing it together. Doing it together. Secondly, this kind of love is hard because there's just so many counterfeit versions of love all around us. I know I've said it before, but the word love is just a junk drawer word nowadays, isn't it? It, it really is used by, to describe things, of things that we like. And there's a big difference between things that we like and things that we love. Martin Lloyd-Jones described the, the world's version of love as sickly and sentimental. Sickly and sentimental. And even though there are so many sickly and sentimental versions of likes or love all around us, praise God that he has so graciously defined for us exactly on his own terms, the correct terms, the truth on what love is. He hasn't left us in the dark, has he? 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. There it is, here it comes. Here comes the definition, get ready for it. That he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We begin there, though. We begin there at the love of God. Because only in His love can we ever comprehend then what real love is, and then know how to love one another, and then to serve one another. It's quite unfortunate, though, how sickly and sentimental love has entered into the church and has confused us then on what love is. And, and I know why, because it's easy to produce. It's easy to produce sentimentality. 
It's easy to produce fluffy things that sound good, that feel good, and therefore that must be right, that must be true, that must be love, but it doesn't line up with the Word of God. It's easy to conjure up sentiment with music, with lights, with fog, and with, with talent to bring excitement, to get people clapping and, and shouting. But again, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, said, the more excited they get and the emotional they become, the more wonderful they think the blessing of the Spirit has been. And yet, it's only emotionalism brought in by sentimentality. And here's how I know that is true. 1 John 3.18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Deed and truth is not mere sentimentality. Emotion is there. I'm not saying that to excuse. Emotion is there. Great. We have emotion. Absolutely. But not emotionalism. The love that we have seen in Christ toward us is not mere sentimentality, is it? It's not cupcake words. It's true. It is truth that has changed us. It is truth that is still changing us. It's still shaping us. It's still drawing us up in grace. So our passage ends as we end with a very familiar promise in verse 28, 29, and 30. As the Father was giving a kingdom to Jesus, so Jesus is giving one to his disciples. And again, we see this glorious promise that by God's grace through his suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, he willingly took our sin and our shame and punishment so that sinners can be forgiven. That sinners can be brought into the kingdom of God. That sinners can be brought into the light so that one day we will eat and drink at his table. There will always be ebb and flow in this life. Our flesh is weak, the world is fallen, and our lives very much mirror that evening. But let us cling to truth. Let us cling to Christ and live by his grace, praying that we would be more and more shaped by the gospel, believing these great promises so that we could continue to sing the song, I hear the words of love, verse 4 now, I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for how it shapes us. Thank you for showing us your character in this story. We see ourselves. We see the ebb and flow of life. We understand the struggles of sin and temptation. Lord, you do. And yet you graciously shepherd us in your word. You shepherd us in what love is. You shepherd us in what serving is. And so, oh Lord, would you help us as we continue to contemplate and meditate and think and dwell upon these truths and as we respond to one another, that we are encouragement to one another in how we respond in our honesty and our openness and, and as we speaking of the good things of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.